Hello and welcome to this season two of the From the Moon podcast with me, David Pleasant. This year has seen the opening of the 23rd International Exhibition of Triennale Milano. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, An Introduction to Mysteries, and so each episode we try to unpack a different component of this quite literally unknowably vast subject matter. It is very complex, but to make it simple, you can actually think of gravity being at the very, very core of what it's like to be human. We are as we are because of gravity. What do we think that we know about the universe? And could or should we even be attempting to know everything? Maybe we can learn to coexist with life's mysteries. We'll be asking all these questions and many more here on From the Moon. During the course of this series, we'll be speaking to artists, designers and scientists who'll guide me, your host, on this journey through knowledge and understanding. Last year, in 2021, as we were in varying states of the pandemic, crisis and recovery, From the Moon attempted to bring you something of a global observation. The series of seven episodes tackled many of the vital issues facing the planet today, from climate change to social inequality, all through a cultural lens. Always on the horizon back then was Triennale Milano's 23rd International Exhibition. And this July, this fantastic show opened its doors to the public. I may be biased, but it really is worth a visit. One of those things that has to be seen to be believed. For those of you that have not yet been, there is still time as it is on until the 11th of December this year. If you have been and would like to go deeper into some of what is on show, Triennale Milano has made a podcast for you. And first up on the series, we look at something so fundamental in our universe that we tend to think that we know everything about it. From Newton's apple to the tidal pull of the moon, can we look at gravity as playing a central role as the greatest designer? It shapes everything physical and or relational, including space and time, but do we truly understand it? So now we investigate the physical and emotional consequences of gravity, how they sometimes work in perfect synchrony, and how sometimes, for whatever reason, they don't. First up, we have Yuli Jonas Urbonas, Lithuanian artist, designer, researcher, engineer, founder of the Lithuanian Space Agency and associate professor at Vilnius Academy of Arts. He talked to me about his installation currently at Triennale Milano entitled When Accelerators Turn Into Sweaters, as well as the emotional side of gravity. Yuli Jonas Urbonas, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of from the moon. What I wanted to start with you is maybe if you can take us back to your upbringing, because you've told me previously that it was quite an unusual setting for a child to grow up and it was to have quite a big impact on, on your career and your work. So maybe take us back to uh, Lithuania several decades ago. 
Yeah, so at that time, I probably I would say half of my life spent in a small Soviet amusement park, of which CAO was my father. And actually, it is something that also was run by me. A few decades later, I ran that park for three or four years. So uh, during that time, my father was quite skeptical about kindergartens, so he would not allow me and my sister to go to kindergartens, and he would drop me and my sister into the park. Uh, so my family, and I would say my nannies, were uh, ride operators, cashiers, safeguards, uh, you know, all the amusement park employees. Everybody thinks that it could have been a dream childhood setting, but actually it was totally opposite. I never liked to ride the rides because I'm prone to seasickness or motion sickness. And that unique kind of situation, being intimately related to the amusement park, as well as being in a critical distance to it, uh, made me wonder about this unique kind of phenomenon that attracts millions of people around the world every day, queuing up for two, three hours just to have one minute of uh, torture, of sweating, shouting, and vomiting. And that made me to wonder first as a child of what makes people to come and how can I actually affect it? And this is why I started to work on unique kind of strategies. How can I modify the machinery so that people would get even more sicker <laughs> or less? And by twisting their guts of the public, I realized that it had unique kind of aesthetic potential that nothing else, nobody else would uh, have it. Probably only in astronaut uh, training camps, you can find something close to it. So uh, realizing that this unique kind of aesthetic potential has not been developed properly, I would say, or realizing that the industry of amusement parks has been driven by macho and pop culture domains, I thought it really demanded for a new artistic and critical approach. And this is where I set out to level up amusement rides to the level of art. And this is where I started my decade-long artistic research into what I call gravitational aesthetics. Yeah, I wanted to go into that concept that you've coined, gravitational aesthetics, what are the basics of this concept? What are the different types of emotions or reactions that you've uh, identified within that aesthetic? Yeah, yeah. Initially, it was just this uh, hunch, this feeling that there is something very unique, unprecedented lurking beneath the amusement rides. And this is where I looked into alternatives and I thought of my experiments of modifying amusement rides, existing amusement rides, as well as imagining new ones, was a little bit like what I would say 
design of amusement rides for alternative reality, which soon, very soon, expanded into something much uh, larger, uh, which uh, later I call gravitational aesthetics, which could be seen as a study of art and culture under altered states of gravity. Uh, for instance, weightlessness, artificial gravity, hypergravity. Simply put, I would direct a, some sort of altered gravity situation and I expose certain art under such circumstances and allow myself and the public to contemplate the effects. And such a creative approach has a lot to do with choreographical thinking and imagination. You know, choreography is the key tool of negotiating gravity, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. in such a practice, in, in such a practice, I usually start with imagining unprecedented choreography that has not been danced or imagined before. And once I come up with a means of realizing the dance, it is only then do I look into what actually this means, what impact of this makes on our thinking and imagination or sensual, psychological, social being. A few examples, euthanasia coaster, uh, roller coaster engineered to end the life of a rider with pleasure and elegance, a planet made of human bodies, hypergravitational piano, and maybe I could, I could expand on the latter one because it's the direct example of how I uh, put music under altered states of gravity. Uh, there was uh, a few months long performance piece in which I merged astronaut training machine, human centrifuge with grand piano. So you can imagine a piano player was spinning and was exposed to three Gs, like uh, three times greater than gravity, uh, the centrifuge became kind of hypergravitational sound stage, under which unique experiments were conducted. The piano player had to negotiate with this new kind of gravitational circumstances and to learn play anew. And it was not only a unique kind of bodily situation, but also the instrument itself was under certain physical <laughs> effects that all of this gave birth to what I would call extraterrestrial sound. So that kind of brings us to the piece that we currently will see or, or, or about to see at the Triennale in Milan. This uh, you have entitled When Accelerators Turn Into Sweaters. Again, there's a kind of um, playful quite a humorous approach to your, your work somehow, or is it irony? I'm not quite sure, but it's very intriguing nonetheless. Can you tell us about this piece? It was a long process of research. Take us through that and explain what we can see there now. Hmm. First of all, I have to mention that I spent one month art residency in Turn you know, the largest, the most complicated lab in the world in 2016. I've been working on several ideas and projects, but probably the most complicated and the one that is uh, directly related to the piece that I'm going to show at the Triennale is um, 
based on superconductive materials, the materials that once uh, frozen are uh, superconductive, but also that also exhibit unique kind of levitating uh, characteristics, in more technical terms, the Meissner effect. <laughs> so I was imagining what would happen if such materials worked under room temperature, how art design architecture would change because of possibility of making things levitate. It's a very complex thing to achieve, what, what you were hoping to do, the actual threading of this uh, material that would kind of support itself. Did you achieve that or did you have to kind of diversify the end product? Can you just explain what we actually see now? So you can imagine that, first of all, it took a while to realize it because, as I said, the residency was in 2016. <laughs> so it has been how many? Seven years? Almost seven years so to realize this project, which is quasi-functional. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to, that sweater to be levitating. And I wanted it to show where it is coming from, which actually is the core of Large Hydron Collider, you know, the accelerator. And so I actually thought of taking a true real spare core of a collider and etching the core of it. So getting out the magnetic core, etching into threads and knitting, literally knitting accelerator into sweater. Uh, that, that sounds uh, quite straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but to do this, it, it took, as I said, seven years because it had to be done underwater with lots of lots of research, with lots of uh, failures. And eventually we wanted that sweater to levitate, but in order to make it levitate, you need to freeze it to certain temperature, to almost absolute zero, which is super, super cold. For that, you would need the liquid nitrogen and liquid helium. <laughs> and once I started to get inquiries from museums and galleries, and we were negotiating on the conditions, we realized that it is probably impossible to have all the machinery to cool the sweater <laughs> and also because of hazards and, and so on and so on. So I started to think of this as from a perspective of, I would say, meta-levitation. Magnetic. Uh, uh, meta, no, meta. meta kind of okay. man, ma yeah, mental. <laughs> mental levitation. Yeah. So I thought, how can I make this a little bit like prop even though the object itself was made for true levitation, but to make it as a set, as a prop for mental levitation of a public. So the public could imagine that machine to be levitating. That's amazing. And if listeners could kind of see your expressions, you're so enthused by this. It's really, you've got a very contagious smile. And I feel like that's a big part of your work and process as well. And it's a good place for us to bring the conversation to an end because I feel like a lot of your thinking is really on the emotional and social and psychological impact of 
not only technology and, and science, but particularly gravity. And that's the topic of this episode. You're talking about that experience at CERN and you said that you it gave you an empathetic approach to scientists. And I really like that because I just feel like you don't hear that that very often, empathy and science. It's like they're two different worlds, like totally separate. Does that kind of really sum up your position in the artistic and scientific world? Oh, well, first of all, responding to the quote, I was actually referring to this unique kind of insight that I had during the residence at CERN, that uh, by being empathetic to scientists allowed me to know them better, to show respect to them, but as well to become friends with them and science in general. But on the other hand, what I felt is that I was dealing with unique kind of definition of empathy, which was also non-human. Those scientists at CERN, the ones that I met, all of them showed unique kind of empathy to non-human entities, whatever, particles, the machinery. And I felt it was a very unique kind of definition uh, of empathy that allowed them to become such scientists as they are. And I think this is also evident in my practice. Uh, when I imagining and, and doing experiments with uh, certain uh, gravitational phenomena, I quite often empathize with also kind of non-human <laughs> entities, whether existing or not. So being empathetic, it means you know, being sensitive, being also tolerant to the other and allowing yourself to be in friction. But putting this, all of this aside and, and talking about uh, sensual, psychosocial, political, economical, whatever effects of altered states of gravity, it is very complex. But to make it simple, you can actually think of gravity being at the very, very core of what it's like to be human. Balance is very, very integral part of us. It is because of gravity and balance we can think, we can imagine, we can even talk. <laughs> and I think that this quite recent history of uh, defying gravity is making us uh, gravitational artists. Think of roller coaster. You know, roller coaster brings what used to be as fatal trajectory when you fall down. You know. Now, all of a sudden, that straight line, that parabolic line of falling is entangled and shaped in such a way that this fatal trajectory has become an, a form of art. And it is only through these disruptions of balance you can become critical, aware of what it's like to be human and what is it that we call humans, culture, nature, space and place. And this is a little bit like what I've been doing. I've been disrupting this <laughs> balance. Well, that's a wonderful way to end because you've brought us right back to the amusement park on a roller coaster of sorts. Uh, this interview has been a fantastic introduction and explanation of gravity. So thank you very much, Yulianas. Thank you. Thank you, David. <laughs> That was Lithuanian artist, designer and researcher Yuli Jonas Urbanas there 
taking me on an emotional roller coaster through some of his artistic and scientific practice when it comes to gravity, the theme of this episode of From the Moon. From the emotional side of gravity to the material, sculptural, and even spiritual dimension of this omnipresent force. More known for the raw crudeness of his paintings, prolific and highly successful Mexican artist Bosco Sodi has of late ventured into sculpting. And at Triennale Milano, you can see some of his work. Entitled Perfect Bodies, the pieces are solid, powerful, and although very recent, are unmistakably the work of Sodi. 12 uh, unperfect spheres of solid clay that I made them at my studio in Casa Wabi in Oaxaca. They're made with the clay from Oaxaca. They're solid. I made them by hand. Each one is around maybe 600 kilos, 400 kilos. It takes us like four to five days to make them, but then they have to dry for one year in different uh, ways. First, cover with the plastic. Then we open the plastic and let some air get inside for a few minutes, then a few hours, then we leave them uh, covered uh, in the shadows for three or four months, then uncover for another three or four months, then we place them in the sun to dry, and then we cook them in a rustic uh, oven with a wood or coconut skin or jacaranda seeds for 18 hours. And uh, the concept of, uh, of the spheres, we do them on the the rustic oven because we want also to have this kind of accidents from the smoke, from uh, the natural glaze, uh, different textures and colours from the process. It seems like um, already from what you're telling me about the process, the materiality of them, the weight of them, the size, the scale is a really important factor in, in your work and your thinking. It kind of impacts everything the material is kind of the focus of your practices as an artist with these particular pieces? Well, in general, the, my work is based on the process, on the materials, on the researching. In this case, of course, uh, the energy of the earth, they can be hollow and it will be easier to transport them and do them. But for me, I really believe in the energy of the earth. As Bosco Sodi explains the fundamental process of making clay, one that relies on the four classic elements in nature, fire, air, water and earth, he reflects on the centrality of his relationship with one of those, perhaps the most tangible, the earth. Each of his imperfect clay spheres that are currently on display at the Unknown Unknowns exhibition embodies the earth's energy made by hand and cooked by the sun and fire of a rustic kiln, they are each totally unique and have a heavy, almost mystical presence when seen in person. The forces of nature and the effect of gravity can be felt in a very immediate way when looking at Sodi's sculpture. So for him, can gravity be seen as the greatest designer? Yes, 100%. All, all my work is dictated by the elements at the end, and the elements are dictated by gravity. So my works are a result of this constant dance between gravity and materials. 
of course, no? In the case of the sphere, it's more specific because when you do the sphere, of course, they are not perfect because gravity plays a big game when we're, where we're doing them and they're more like oval in a way because the, the weight of the sphere falls down, no? Exactly. But in, in all my work, in the paintings, in the clay cubes, in the organic rocks, the element of gravity is very, very, very present. It dictates at the end the outcome and, and it's part of my philosophy, you know, how the non-control, the unpredictability, the weather, the humidity dictates the final outcome of the work. And that's what makes it totally unique and irrepeatable even for me. I'm interested in kind of relationship with gravity somehow. You're almost, you, you said dancing, this interaction with it. Do you feel that's kind of explaining gravity somehow? You'll feel like you're translating it somehow? Is your work a, a way of yeah. explaining Gravity. Well, yes, I mean, the gravity and the concept of, uh, of, of life in a way, no? Gravity is a big part of why we are here, no? Without gravity, there won't be a planet, there won't be life, there won't be anything at all. What I'm very interested about gravity is the tension that it creates between the materials, between the objects and the, and the surrounding, no? I also want to sort of look at the sort of emotional connection to gravity, there's kind of ways in which, as you say, it influences every aspect of our life. It created the planet. It has this sort of almost indescribable but fundamental role in everything. But it's also, also something very shamanic no? and magical. No? It's part of the essence of life. and It's difficult to explain it that way, but it's part of the essence of life. And you have to understand that when you understand the things that become part of the essence of life, it's easier to under- understand life in a way. Gravity is a, the center of everything, of mathematics, of physics, of, of everything. So it's something that it's present all the time, but we don't remember it. That we're dealing with it all, no, every day of, of our lives. In, but it's, in a way, it has been a bless. I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't believe in God in a way, but gravity is something magical, something very special that has allowed us to be here. And finally, from the kind of... Uh that uh, very, very kind of spiritual aspect. I was interested, just it came into my head, when you were explaining at the beginning the steps in creating your works, was that a kind of process of trial and error? Like, how did you learn how to work with gravity? Was a a lot of uh, spheres would collapse and break or they dried too quickly or too slowly? I mean, how did you devise this kind of approach. Well, it's about, my work's about experimentation and allowing the accident to happen. And when there is an interesting accident, to try to appropriate the accident and, and continue it. At the end, uh, a lot of things that uh, have uh, make my work evolve and change has been gra- uh, related to gravity. For example, uh, I'm more, more known because of my paintings no, than the, the works on clay, but... These paintings that I begin to do with sawdust, uh, I begin to do them because one day I had a bucket full of uh, sawdust with water and pigment and it fell down because of gravity. And then what was in the floor and it began to crack. I mean, my work is based on the accidents. I'm looking for the accidents, for the unpredictable. But when I find so- an accident that is interesting, I continue to do it. That was Mexican artist Bosco Sodi there talking me through his latest work, Perfect Bodies, which can be seen now at the Unknown Unknowns exhibition at Triennale Milano. 
Next up, we look at the art and science of designing an exhibition, and not just any exhibition. We are talking about our own exhibition, which opened its doors this July. I began by speaking to Camilo Oliveira of design agency Space Caviar, who, together with the founder, Joseph Grima, and his team, created an extraordinary system to exhibit unknown unknowns, one that pushed the boundaries of 3D printing. So the name of the exhibition is Unknown Unknowns, right? And I think that this unknown unknowns factor, they, we were using it from the beginning of the planning of the exhibition design until the end, because the whole process of creating this exhibition, the, the exhibition design, it was made out of unknowns. I mean, we knew things that we didn't know, but there were many aspects also of the process of building that we didn't know that we didn't know. Camilo Oliveira is describing the main exhibition space of Triennale Milano's thematic show, Unknown Unknowns, an introduction to mysteries, curated by Ercilia Vaudo. As we are discovering, this is a vast and boundless subject. It is, of course, open to interpretation. But as a physical exhibit, it must be accessible. It must make sense for the visitor, while allowing for some key themes to really stand out. For Camilo and the Space Caviar team, central to achieving this was the need to apply their design skills to new and ever-evolving technologies. And 3D printing was the main building tool that they used to achieve this. One big problem with exhibitions, says Camilo, is that because of their temporality, they nearly always produce a lot of waste. And here is where the real benefits of using these kinds of new technologies come in. Space Caviar worked with pioneering manufacturers of 3D printers for the building industry Wasp, based near Bologna, and Rice House, an Italian startup that has developed cement made from discarded rice products that are also biodegradable. In some ways, it felt like it was a very kind of simple concept but it was very complicated to deliver. Is that about right? Like you were telling me each shape had to be designed kind of as part of a whole printed diagram, as it were. You, you, if you moved one section, that had an impact on all the rest. It felt like you had to really put some of your mathematical or technical skills to use. Is that another kind of aspect of this exhibition? That's totally correct. Because what happened was that, so there are a series of, surprises or a series of factors that we had to put in consideration in order to build. So the area that we have for the exhibition is this 1,200 square meters of a horseshoe-shaped exhibition space. To project how they were going to build or print onto the surface of Triennale's curved gallery space, Camilo and his team devised a grid, a radial diagram with an imaginary centre. All the pedestals of the eventual exhibition would extrude from the 2D floor plan, but they are all different in volume. Only their height remains the same, allowing the visitor to look at the displays at a uniform level. To give you an idea of what this grid looks like, think of the semicircular curve at either ends of an Olympic running track. These radiating curved lanes are crossed by the straight lines for sprinting, creating a complex and very beautiful grid. 
Each of these lines, they were 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters, both from the center and another ones going across to create this grid on the floor. So this grid is imaginary. And it's funny because when we also think about center of gravity and, and, and space, there's also these diagrams of gravity and these lines that you don't see. And so there is this relationship. And what happened was each of the pedestals, they are an extrusion of this combination of lines. So each of these uh, areas that we had to delimitate and to extrude, they are unique, as I explained. So in exhibitions, usually, or the ones that I've been working at, you can, if you do something, you can move the pieces, you can move the pedestals because they are never so heavy or they're never so made in that space. But in this case, we could not move anything because the process of creating an exhibition also is from beginning to an end. You have these pieces that are coming and maybe throughout the process, this piece is, this piece is not relevant for the storytelling of the exhibition. So this has to go and something else has to come. So we had so many things that they were coming together. But, but there's this precise plan that you really had to stick to. I mean, you obviously, you got there in the end, but uh, would you say that that was the most surprising element of working on this? That level of precision was really something that you weren't expecting would have such an impact on how you worked? Well, I think that the challenge there was also that working on the computer is very easy. To create these lines on the computer is very easy. And to have a 2D plan, an AutoCAD plan, where everything is perfect, is very easy. But then to translate all these lines into the space and to understand where exactly these lines, what can I use as reference points from this floor plan? And then we had to go there and to take triangles from the geometry of the space. So everything was triangulated to understand if the building, the physical building was the same as the drawing. So luckily... We had very little difference from the physical space to what we had in the drawing. So each of the pedestals have at least four corners, at least, and they don't have right angles, so 90 degrees angles. Everything is curved. And working with curves, it's super difficult. It's much more difficult to work with right angles because you have the 90 degrees, you put in there, and you're done. In this case, everything has this curved shape. So also... One of the things that is important to mention also that it's that together with uh, WASP, so it's the first time that WASP developed this 3D printer that it was also moving inside the space. Because before they had a stationary 3D printer, so you would mount this printer and you would print and then you demount and you take it somewhere. In our exhibition, in our case, WASP had to develop a system that this printer could move from one space to another. So we had, I think, 10 printing stations. 10 points at which the printer must pump out satisfying soft tubes of paste from a robotic arm. Imagine watching one of those cake factory videos online, only swap the sweet frosting for grey cement. Taking up to two days to build up the hundreds of layers needed for the pedestals all around, the printer then moves on to the next point. 
slowly but surely making this most solid of exhibition displays come to life as it goes. It was, however, a very delicate process with little margin for error. So it was just a series of complications that I had no idea in the beginning that they would exist because there is the naivety, let's say, like this from my side, that to imagine that you can do everything with 3D printer. Ah, you can do everything. But then, in fact, it's not because we also had to go through a series of uh, prototypes because... 3D printer, also made with this organic material, if we print it too fast, or depending on the geometry of the, these pieces, they collapse. Listening to you uh, explain that very complex thing, and you know, I'm, I'm in complete admiration for you and your team that you managed to do something quite so complex. It really makes me think about the kind of research, the R&D element of what you're doing, and the fact that you're really experimenting with a material and with a technology. And I think that's a big part of the exhibition as a whole. It's really a way in which practitioners and designers and scientists, multidisciplinary lot of people really are experimenting in their fields. Do you feel that that's what makes uh, something like this or that hard work worthwhile is that kind of experimentation? And maybe I'd like to ask, do you feel like this exhibition or the work that you did into it could be replicated or could WASP use some of what was learnt to build other structures? I think that so one of the points of uh, why this exhibition was 3D printed, uh, which I think is important to mention also, it's because spatial exploration, that's also so Ercilia Valdo is the astrophysicist from the European Space Agency, working closely together with her and also a part of this research was seeing that space explorations, they use the local resource to build architecture. So it's not that they're going to be taking the materials from here, but so thinking about how they've been, they've been using 3D printing or they're speculating on the use of 3D printing to build in Mars and to build on the moon, we decided to imagine that this could be also a step towards using 3D printing technology on Earth, that it's not a brand new uh, technique, but to use it architect in architectural scale is something that we're finding a lot of challenges. So that's why we thought that it was very relevant to go through this research, because it's really fascinating to see the possibilities that you have with this, not only formally, but also speed-wise, also how there is a fascination of looking at this machine to work also, and how this, in the end, it builds. So it's like, wow. And it takes much less people, which it's questionable maybe in, in terms of, you know, machines uh, replacing humans, but it's, in fact... It's very much of a work, close work together. So um, definitely it's a start of something. Well, um, thank you so much for explaining that complex project. And um, it kind of struck me the physicality of it. And it's funny that, that one of the companies is involved is called Wasp because I felt like there were these wasp nests created. The colour, the texture, there's something very kind of organic about it. And yet it comes from something very technologically advanced. So thank you very much for explaining that wonderful project. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you, David. And designer Camilo Oliveira there brings us to the end of episode one of this season two of From the Moon, in which we have looked at gravity. Whether from scientific, sculptural, architectural or even emotional perspectives, there is much about gravity we are only beginning to grasp. And as much as we are finding out, we only continue to ask more questions. Next time, we venture into the realms of exploration, encountering the unknown, whether it be in space, beneath the water, or even in our own noses. This podcast is brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, with production support from Pale Blue Dot. Sound editing and design was by Alex Port Felix, and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama. Drama.